Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis, and today is the first part of a two-part awards talk. Uh, Travis Yost is on the other side of this intro uh, from TSN, and next week I'll have Josh Clipperton of the Canadian Press on. His first time on, looking forward to that. Um, So yeah, just a heads up on that, split the awards into two because there's so many and there's so many intriguing storylines regarding them, Uh, and also... Uh, follow, follow on, on Twitter at, at, at Mattis John, M-A-T-I-S-Z-J-O-H-N, and also iTunes for this podcast. Type in Off the Post or SoundCloud or Stitcher or Google Play because you won't want to miss the second part of this award series. All right, let's go. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. Here with Travis Yost, esteemed hockey writer at TSN.ca, and apparently a big Yankees fan. Wait, uh, hold on. Now, hold on a second there. <laughs> two, two points of conflict there. One, I am not esteemed. And two, yeah, you have to – do people criticize Yankee fans? So my two areas of defense here. One, from New York. Two, do I not suffer enough with teams like the Knicks and the Bills that I don't, I don't get this small taste of victory every once in a while? Aren't you? Are you a Sens fan or just a Sens commentator? Yes, and yeah, let's add it to the trifecta there, bud. <laughs> so yeah, you can have fun with uh, that lineup that they trotted out against the, the Jays today. The thing about Ottawa, though, is they have up and down years. I mean, if they've, they've never won it, but I think the, the all you can ask for when you're a fan of a team is that they stay reasonably competitive. No one expects every team to be good every year. It's that the Knicks and the Bills are the ho- two of the three teams in the Holy Trinity, probably with the Browns. Yes, yes. It's literally impossible for them to win. At this point, it is that's the only conclusion you can come up with, and I've got two of those three. That's that's are those are all those teams uh, like was it your dad that liked them, or was it just because you're from New York? I don't know how the Sens get on your radar. Yeah, so uh, so New York is. I was born and raised in New York, lived my whole life in New York, but you know, part of my friends and family are from from the Canadian uh, from Ontario. And uh, I, the, one of the first games that I went to actually was an Ottawa game. So I kind of got entrenched and entangled with Ottawa that way. And then with the Bills, it was because, again, you know, most of my friends on Long Island, Giants-Jets fans. And I was like three or four years old, and I asked my, uh, I asked my old man, I'm like, hey, you know, when you're a kid, you're very impressionable. I was like, Who, what team is from New York? And my dad, thinking he was funny at the time, was like, well, technically only one. He was making a joke <laughs> that I obviously didn't understand about the Giants and Jets playing in East Ruthford. And I was like, all right, so Buffalo's a New York team. I'm a Bills fan. And then, of course, the Knicks are the, the local team and, and the Yankees are the local team. But th- this is how it all came together. And I, I, if I could go back in time, I'd probably change a few things. Like I, I, cannot be, I cannot lie to you about this, but at least for this lifetime, that's who I'm riding with. Hey, man, I, I respect you for riding it out. Like It cannot be easy, especially... I mean, I think you're around the same age as me, so you would have missed the the Bills debacles of the early '90s. Like you would have been like a toddler or five or six, right? So at least you've missed that. But there's been a lot of pain since then, too. My my true Bills fandom period is effectively a 17 year drought and a playoff game last year where we scored three points. Which, <laughs> by the way, I would not trade for anything. It's the coolest thing in the world to lose in the wild card weekend just to actually see a playoff game. That it could actually happen was a, a big win, but you know I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna guess that your fans are uh, 
not too up on the Bills beat right now, although I can go for an hour on the Bills if you want. No, no, no. We'll transition. We'll transition. So having you on today, 10 days before the regular season ends. So that means, hey, let's talk awards. Are these going to be our, you know, sealed and approved picks? Uh, maybe, maybe not, um, especially with the, the awards that we're going to talk about today. A couple of them are still up in the air, but um, 10 days left, like not that much is going to happen. So I felt like it was a good time to have you back on. Um, and go ahead and, and add caveats when, when we talk here. But we're going to go through uh, the Vesna first, then the Selkie, then the Hart. And I'm going to do all the other relevant awards on a second awards podcast next week. So uh, let's get going. Uh, the Vesna Trophy, best goalie. That's how it is described. Um, it's voted on by the GMs. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's Curtis McElhinney, right? Like he's been he's been unreal this year. So Curtis McElhinney is the clear-cut favorite to run away with this. Um, and by the way, by the way, just out of pure curiosity, um, goaltenders are very tricky to vote for awards way for for a billion different reasons. Not the least of which is you're really relying on the team in front of you. Um, I mean, there's so many factors at play. So just out of curiosity, one of my first starting points is okay. When we talk about qualified goaltenders, you know, sorry, when we talk about goaltenders, who qualifies? And how do they stack by basically two or three metrics, right? So both, it, it, it's pretty it, – it's inexact for me, but the couple things I look at are what's your stop rate? What is your save percentage? Um, I do look at goals against only as it pertains to what type of pace um, that team might play against because okay. I, I think goals against average is kind of – it's kind of a junk metric. But if you can properly control for pace, it could have a secondary meaning or value. And the third piece is – which I think is a much newer version of this, is what is your actual save percentage versus your expected save percentage? So, yeah. you know, this this is not an exact science either, but, you know, I think a lot of good work has been done on this front in terms of trying to calculate or understand, okay, based on where shots are coming from, the types of shooters these generating these shots, and, and the environment, the operational environment, and the team that the goaltender plays for, what would we expect his save percentage to be? And a lot of times I look at big variances, like especially the guys who have actual state percentages way above expectation. This is all a very nice way of me saying that I think there are two guys who can win the trophy this year. And and, and all due respect to John Gibson, Connor Hellebuck, who I think have had really, really good years. To me, it's either Pekka Rene or Sergei Bobrovsky, and I can make it the argument pretty simple here. Pekka Rene has, I, b- I believe he is the league leader in save percentage. He might be a, a hundredth of a decimal point off of Marc-Andre Fleury, um, but he's definitely played a lot more. He's one of the best goaltenders in the league, on one of the best teams in the league, and I think will has a very good shot of ending the season with the best save percentage in the league. Um, I think he's probably won, what, 75% of the games he started to. Just, I mean, that's a product of playing for a really good team, but his resume uh, is is probably the most impressive at the surface level, I, and and one other thing I will say about Rene, talk about a guy that I I am I was completely wrong on um, about four five three uh, three four five years ago I thought I thought he was done and and not done in the sense that he's going to wash out of the league, but like hey he's no longer a starter who can give you forty fifty sixty, and maybe maybe I wasn't wrong maybe he really was going through a, a rough stretch um, where he just wasn't playing that well but. You know, I had chalked it up to, okay, this guy is a middle-of-the-pack goaltender at best at this point in his career. Let's move on. And he has had an unbelievable year, so I'm eating a little bit of crow on that. Um, he, he he is an absolute lead-pipe lock for a Vezina finalist. I think he's going to win it. The other guy who I would throw my hat in the ring for is Bobrovsky. And the reason why is 
it gets to the heart of what I was talking about earlier, which is if you actually look at the save percentage, whether you're using Corsica or you know any other type of expected goal or expected save percentage measure, one thing that becomes patently obvious, and you can actually just look at, at heat maps and, sh- and, yep. and shooting charts for teams that face Columbus, you can see that teams generate a lot of really good chances from really in close against Columbus, or have for the majority of the year. I think they've gotten a lot better in the last couple of months. And yet, with all of that, no doubt Bobrovsky's faced some of the toughest shots in the league. He's still got over a 920 save percentage. Um, I, I think he's probably the league leader in games played. If he's not number one, he's got to be in the top two or three. And by the way, I and not that you know we'll, we'll probably talk about this when we have a little playoff talk at some point. But Columbus is an absolute freight train. I, I think they are terrifying, and of course they're going to play Pittsburgh, who's probably one of the two teams they don't want to see. But he has been phenomenal all year long. So my hierarchy is Pekarene one, Bobrovsky two, and then man, I could, I could go a bunch of ways for my third guy. I, I think I'd probably put John Gibson in the mix. But, I mean, I think you could vote Hellebuck, too, and be pretty fine. I think Marc-Andre Fleury is going to get some votes. He's been fantastic for Vegas. Uh, I'm, so I am curious to hear, one, who's your winner. But, really, who do you have in that third slot, too? Okay, so a lot to unpack there. First of all, I do have Pekka Rene as my winner. Um, and That's good. when I was going through this, the, one of the things that popped in my head was that we, we talked about him uh, I guess it was last playoff run about when are the wheels going to fall off on this guy? His his start to the playoffs was out of this world, and it, they ended up falling off in the, in the final, unfortunately, for Nashville. But I think when that happened, people went, okay, now we're going to get back to uh, Pecorine of old. And, you know, he's, he's I believe he's 36 now. Like, this is just, this is the end of the road for him being a quality goaltender. He's going to go to league average, and that's fine, but just not come back as, as a force. And then... Here we are at the end of uh, of the regular season, basically, and uh, vintage Rene. Uh, he's uh, leading the league in five on five save percentage, and uh, uh, you mentioned there you, you you weren't sure if he was leading the league in uh, in normal save percentage or, or all situations, and he's two two points behind uh, Mark Andre Fleury. Um, but with Fleury, the the flag there, the the thing that stops me is his um, his injuries and, and the fact that he's only played, I believe, forty two, forty three games. Um, we're, we're recording this Thursday night, I should add. Um, and also, if he if he plays out of his mind and finishes with 48, 49 games played, which is if he plays out the string for Vegas, then maybe, maybe, maybe I reconsider Flurry. But at this point, Rene's body of work, um, being an MVP on uh, a Nashville team that's caught a lot of high-quality players, like that's that can't go unnoticed. And I just think consistency is something that that we sort of forget about uh, when we start talking about awards. We always think about the second half of the season, the last month. Like, this guy's been strong throughout. Um, so I had Rene, and then Fleury's kind of hanging around 2, 3, 4 as, as an asterisk. Um, but I did have John Gibson, actually, um, ahead of Brabovsky. And I didn't think, you know, Gibson was necessarily uh, right next to Rene. I think there was a, a, a fair jump back. Uh, down the totem pole, so to speak. Um, but with Gibson, the guy's 24. I think this is the year where we can say he's joined the upper echelon of goaltenders. I know that he's, you know, he's put up good numbers, good underlying numbers for a few years. But like, I think now we have a, a large, a large enough sample to actually crown him, you know, a top, I don't know, five, ten goalie, wherever you want to go with that uh, in the league. And then after Gibson, I had Brabovsky, and then after Brabovsky, I had Hellebuck. So that was my top five. 
Rene, Gibson, Brabovsky, Hellebuck, and, and Fleury. I don't really know where to put him at this point. Um, but with Hellebuck, just to, to end on him, it, he's the breakout goalie of the year for sure. Um, maybe playing behind the worst defense in terms of th- those five goalies that I've mentioned as my finalists. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, like He's obviously playing on a very good team, but you got to give him credit for, for the numbers that he's put up, considering last year was it seemed like a step back. So I'm on team Rene and, uh, and that's my, my list one to five. So we should have, we should have opened with this, but I think we, uh, in the spirit of answering the all encompassing question here, where do you sit in terms of, do you, does a guy, does his team have to make the playoffs to get a vote? And I, I don't profess to have like a concrete opinion on this. I really don't. The the part that just that frustrates me is either just make it a rule or not. Like either the voting criteria is it's best player period for every team in the league, and I think this is more of a heart trophy discussion than anything. But I mean, it could still be true for the Vezina, right? I mean, you're sitting here talking about John Gibson. I mean, there, there's a real possibility Anaheim doesn't make the playoffs. So does that yeah, not Gibson yeah. down because he didn't quote elevate his team or add wins to his team, which we all know is junk, or or what? And and that's that's what I I don't. The, the part I get frustrated with is the ambiguity because you've got a hundred voters who have a hundred different perception in term or a hundred different perceptions yeah. in terms of how they treat the voting process and whether team results do impact their voting or don't. Um, it, I, I think they they've got to figure out a way to iron that out. But I mean, this is a great spot to start answering that question because Gibson is definitely at risk here. Yeah. Well, from my perspective, the whole. Um like if we just if we just we're not going to transition to the heart, but if we just touch on the heart for a second with McDavid, oh that that's a tough one. Just because the Oilers are so far from the playoffs that I have a hard time really um, getting behind him, regardless of of what he does. But with McKinnon, say that the the Avalanche don't make the playoffs by two points, the way the league is set up with this quote unquote parody, this fake parody. That's basically like making the playoffs. Like, <laughs> I don't care if it was uh, a couple bounces here, a couple bounces there. Where I start to think about it more is is when the Oilers have been such a gong show. And I know that's not Connor McDavid's fault, but it starts to kind of conflict in my mind when the team is so bad. If they're a fringe playoff team, I don't care about if they make it or not. It's just when the, when the team is so utterly bad, I got to really think long and hard, is this player... Um, most valuable to his team, and does he stand out enough to really um, give him the award? So to revert that back to uh, the Vesna discussion, I would be okay with, you know, the Anaheim Ducks are going to be close enough to the playoffs for me to still be happy with giving Gibson a lot of credit. I, I, and I think that's reasonable. Again, I, I don't I don't have a smoking gun answer. What I, what I, the only thing I would like to see is basically – the, you know, the, the THWA or whoever, whatever governing body we're talking about here, come out and say, look, you got to make the playoffs to be considered. You could vote for everyone, but if the team doesn't make the playoffs, then those votes are null and void. Or alternatively, it's open to everyone and the interpretation is best player across the board based on whatever we're talking about. Um, I, I I can't disagree with your Edmonton comment. The, the part that just leaves, and we're, we're transitioning, I see this going off the rails already. It's okay. It's, it's okay. Let's talk about the heart. Part, Let's talk about the heart. The, the, this is the part... So I think we should open up about McDavid regardless because I think I think he is going to end up being a finalist. I really do. Regardless of how many people – I think it's going to be tough for him to win because I think there are a lot of voters who are going to say exactly what you said, which I don't think is unfair. 
the team is so bad that it, it's kind of difficult to vote for him. And, and by the way, there's one other criteria here that before Oilers fans freak out. And there are a handful of other guys who really have played really, really well this exactly. year. It's not like McDavid is so far ahead of the pack that it doesn't even matter. But, and this is where I will caveat, I just don't know where to wash my hands of the fact that so much of that disappointment relating to that team is exclusively on the hands of Peter Chiarelli and Tom McClellan. I, I just I don't know how we can say, hey, Connor McDavid, you know, your team is, a, is an absolute laughingstock, and although every measure possible suggests that you're the most, the most or one of the most dominant players in the league, you didn't add any wins. I saw that yesterday from uh, one of the guys from the fourth period. You didn't add any wins to your team, which is <laughs> patently absurd, right? Yeah. Without McDavid, they're dead last, right? It's not even close. So I, I just I, I I would have a hard time not seeing him in the finalists in one of the top three or top four, and I absolutely put him in that in that mix. Um, but you know, again, is for you. I mean, you made the point. It's it's you got to be playoffs doesn't necessarily matter, but you've got to at least be relatively respectable in the standings. There are other people that say you have to make the playoffs, and there are other people that say anyone, no matter what team you're on, it's how many wins did you add, how many goals you score, how many points, whatever. And that's how I measure, and it's a true best player award. And I, I don't profess to know the right answer right now, but at the same time, I, I just think a lot of this confusion um, kind of creeps into the award discussion every year. And people think that McDavid um, is, is the – maybe it is the, it's the epicenter today of this argument. But, I mean, maybe the biggest mistake in the last few years that I can remember yeah. was – Drew Doughty winning the Norris Trophy over <laughs> oh, yeah. Eric Carlson for more or less the same exact reason, right? And I would argue that the gap between Carlson and Doughty at that, on that season was much bigger than the gap between McDavid and whatever handful of guys you got below him. And they gave it to Doughty predominantly because of two things that I think were at play. Voter fatigue, voting Carlson over and over. And on top of that, Ottawa wasn't that good that year. So again, I, I just I, I think this is something that the, it, philosophically the the league and the people who work within the league kind of need to figure out before we can real start putting some real clarity behind this discussion. I agree. Um, yeah, it's and and when it comes to the playoff thing, like, to me, it's just not black and white. It's not if you don't make the playoffs, then you're excluded. It's not if you make the playoffs, you're included. Like I don't know. I think you just need to go case by case, and you know, let let's leave sort of that discussion. Uh, to the side Let, let's just talk about me and you who who we think and this is the definition who we think is the player judged most valuable to his team um, and and I'm going to start by just saying Connor McDavid is <laughs> let me read some of the stats that he's leading the league in so points easy he's already at 102 uh, even strength goals which you, you you just don't assume that he's going to be leading but he's got uh, he's got 34 right now um and and I should also actually add that that me me saying that he's leading these categories, I'm going off a spreadsheet that I made of of eight guys that I think are or sorry seven guys that I think are up for the award at least in my mind, and I ranked it by that. But it more or less you know involves the best players in the league. So th- those players just to to fill you in. So Nathan McKinnon, Connor McDavid, Nikita Kucherov, uh, Evgeny Malkin, Brad Marchand. Uh, Alexei Yashin, <laughs> Alexei Yashin, wow. Uh, Alex Ovechkin. <laughs> he is my favorite, Alexei Yashin. <laughs> I don't know why that came out as that, but Alex Ovechkin is what I meant to say. Uh, Taylor Hall and Claude Giroux. So I think that's really good company. So among those seven, which are 
a lot of the best producers in the league. McDavid leads in points, leads in even strength goals, even strength assists, even strength points by a large ma- margin. Uh, primary points. Um, and then there, there's a bunch of categories that he's second or third in among that group. So this guy has just been a cut above in terms of um, doing it all by himself. But then you look at you look at McKinnon and you go, his points per game is, is, is the highest in the league. His primary points per 60 is 3.28, which is is very high. Uh, the closest to him is Brad Marchand. Um, and he has 11 game-winning goals. I mean, I think that's a stat that's a little forgotten about. I realize that they probably talk about it a lot on broadcast and stuff. But I think in, in, in the conversations that people have about awards, uh, especially as it pertains to, to most valuable, like what's more valuable than scoring in overtime or in the last minute or just that goal that puts you ahead of the other team. So he's got 11 to lead the league. I mean, I don't think we should uh, push that aside. So my, my, my order, and I'll let, I'll let you uh, take over. Mine goes McKinnon uh, with his underlying numbers off the charts and being the best story on a really good story in Colorado, the, the undisputed leader there. Um, and then it goes McDavid and then Kucherov and then Malkin and then Marchand. Okay, so you – sorry, it goes – so you have McDavid – Kucherov 2-3? Correct. Okay, that's really interesting. So I actually think this discussion is – it's almost impossible to get a three, a group of three, and I think you pointed out the reason why. There really is a cluster of five or six guys that are pretty indiscernible from one another. Um, my my number one is – and I, I, I truly – of all the awards, this is the one I go back and forth on the most. So full concession. On no, and, and let, let me My interject. My like right I've, now is Connor. Go ahead. I, I was just going to interject and say, like, by the hour, I'm changing my opinion. Like, I have. Yeah, it, the heart is, honestly, the, this has got to be one of the hardest heart trophy um, years that I, that I, at least in recent history. Like, it, it is so impossible to discern from one another. As we're talking. I, I, I have it as this. I have it as McDavid won. Kucherov to McKinnon three. Wow! And I will probably change that eight times among those three. So the same three as you do, but kind of racked and stacked differently. And and the reason why I think I think it comes down to a couple things of where where our slight variances are. I really do grade McDavid. I I don't care that Edmonton is going to finish twenty fourth or twenty fifth and that far out of the playoffs. I, I think it. I think it knocks him a little bit for me. And again, this is it is not a lot of math here at play, at play where we're talking about this. But it, it knocks him a little bit that Edmonton is just really has been a non-factor most of the year. But there is, if we're talking about the most valuable player, to me, one of the questions you have to answer when you ask that is, okay, if you're the most valuable, how many wins did you add in the standings? How many goals did you add to your team? above what they would do, let's say, without you. And I think for all three of those guys, the answer is, is a substantial, right? But I think it's most substantial for McDavid. There is no doubt in my mind the Oilers would finish 30th or 31st um, without McDavid, probably 31st if they didn't have McDavid this year. I mean, the, the numbers with him off the ice are so laughably bad. <laughs> it, it's, it's the most stunning indictment of a general manager I can really remember for a team that had some real expectations with it too, by the way. And and that's that's where I kind of that's where I kind of deviate from I guess your your more old time voters which is like you got to make the playoffs you got to be close blah 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 
Um, like I, I'll knock him a little bit for the fact that I think I think there are statistical layers that you can knock McDavid for. Like I don't think he is an elite, or he was he certainly wasn't this year an elite power play producer. Um, and you could say, well, that's the system. He doesn't have weapons around him. Well, that's all fine and well, but at the end of the day, he wasn't a great power play producer. And this is a guy that's logging substantial power play minutes. Yeah. You have to if you're gonna if you're gonna cut through this from a data you know minded perspective, which I do. You have to take a couple a couple knocks at McDavid there, but I think you pointed out all of the positives on his side. I mean, I looked at it five on five. I think he's averaging three point three points for sixty minutes at five on five, which I think is him and McKinnon, and then pretty much everyone else. It, it, it's absolutely absurd. And by the way, to my eye, like if you put McDavid on the ice or McKinnon on the ice or Kucherov on the ice, there is no player. It's and this is not even close. Any defenseman in the league, no one, no one wants to be on the ice when McDavid's out there. Whereas for McKinnon and Kucherov and all the other guys, it's like, yeah, those guys are going to shred me apart, but you know, maybe I can get away with a shift and not get scored upon. Like, I, I just think there is just so much respect, and it's really fear, of how dominant McDavid is. And a lot of that is because Edmonton is a completely different team with him on the ice. So I do put him one for now, but I, let me concede a couple things here. It is razor, razor thin. And that is because I have so much respect for Kucherov and McKinnon and what they've done this year. Um, I, I think I think the argument for McKinnon is that he's putting up kind of comparable numbers to McDavid in a couple instances better on a team that is really truly fighting for a playoff spot. And then again, the funny the funny thing about that discussion is everyone is all in on the Nathan McKinnon finalist. But then what if Colorado misses the playoffs, which is also still a play? How do the votes play then? And that's that's part of the confusion that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, I, Kucherov, here's one thing that I am steadfastly opposed to. I think you can evaluate players from great teams to bad teams. I think we need to be able to do that. You can't possibly look at Nikita Kucherov's situation and think he's in a similar environment than Connor McDavid. That, that's uh, no point. No one would dispute that point. And yet, I hear time and time again, though, that a lot of people, a lot of voters seem to be holding the fact that Kucherov is playing on Tampa Bay against him. Like, oh, there's so much weaponry around him. That That is completely true. But there are many, many, many statistical arguments that you can make that show how much better Tampa Bay is with Kucherov on the ice versus baseline. It's the same exact argument as the McDavid one. Yes, Tampa Bay might outscore you 51, 52% of the time with Kucherov you know, off the ice. But it's close to 60% with him on the ice. And, and that is the sort of stuff where you can say, okay, well, if there are six or seven percentage points better with him on the ice, and he's at creating, let's say, one additional goal per 60 minutes, you could start backing into quick math about how many incremental goals Kucherov added to his team and how many wins that translated into the standings. You can do the same exact exercise while still recognizing that there are talent you know, deficiencies on both ends. I, I will let me, let me wrap up with a couple interesting questions. Sure. Because there, can you run through the the top seven names? Because I there were two names that I did not hear that I really think should be in the discussion. So run you had an initial list of seven. Can you run through that real quick? Sure. McKinnon, McDavid, Kucherov, Malkin, Marchand, Ovechkin, Taylor Hall, Claude Giroux. Okay, so I think it was eight, but or I can't count on the one, fly. Two, one of the two. There oh, you're right. That is eight. I, I can't. I can't count. It's eight. All right, so my mental math's good. Uh, there are two other players who I think have had such tremendous seasons that it would be remiss to not include them in the conversation. And maybe this is what I care about more than who actually wins the heart. The two players that 
that stand out to me are Austin Matthews in Toronto and William Carlson in Vegas. And uh, let let me just give you some some quick math on this. I think we know how explosively you know how, how explosive of a goal scorer um, Carlson has been and how dominant Matthews has been pretty much across the board in pretty much every single game state. And I know Matthews missed a little bit of time here. But one of the things I really like looking at, and I have a comment on Marchand here as well, is, okay, let's let's strip this down. Let's talk about five-on-five hockey for just a minute, although I think penalty kill and power play matters a lot here too. Let's talk just five-on-five. Okay. In all of the minutes Matthews played, every 60 minutes he was on the ice, Toronto was two goals better than their competition. I can't that, – that is – first off, that's the top – that's the number one – number in the league uh, the, i think that you know the median is obviously going to be right around zero but for our for our even our top hard trophy um candidates it's maybe a goal goal and a half austin matthews is at over two goals every 60 minutes so if a game starts and it's all played at even strength on average toronto is going to be two goals better that's absolutely absurd william carlson is i believe third or fourth on that list at 1.9 goals so every 60 minutes vegas played carlson was 1.9 goals better or Vegas was 1.9 goals better with him on the ice um, against their uh, against their competition. Those those are ridiculous numbers, and really the only two guys who are in that mix um, with Matthews and Carlson are Marchand and Bergeron. That's not surprising. They play they played you know a decent chunk of minutes together. Um, I think both have really strong you know individual arguments. I think Marchand has been absolutely MVP worthy for the at least for the finalist discussion. Um, and he is actually probably number two on the list, um, right behind Matthews. But I, I think when you combine that with the fact that you know Matthews was almost three points for sixty minutes at five on five, Marchand was a little over. I think William Carlson was like two point five, two point six. But his goal rates are just ridiculous. Like I, I think I think the discussion for the final three is probably ten, eleven, twelve deep, and I, I truly mean that. Like it, it is very difficult to discern you know, a Matthews from a Marchand or a, a Carlson from a Giroux. Like, these guys are really, really similar. I, I don't know. It, it might be, is this recently bias or is it me or is it is this the year where the hard trophy finalists seem to be so tightly clustered together? No, no, no. That's a real thing. There's, it's very rare for there even to be three or four legitimate candidates. Like, there's always people that will make up, you know, crazy scenarios where this, this player deserves it. But, you know, I think there's a consensus across hockey that there's, it's at least five deep. You can go further than that, depending on how uh, in depth or how you, you, you know, you value this or value that. Um, but yeah, this year's special. And just a, a couple thoughts there, Matthews, I would, I would love to include him in the discussion, but he just hasn't played enough. Uh, he's at 57 games right now. I agree. That's what's going to kill him. Yeah, like like that. That's a factor, and we'll talk about that with the Selkie in a second because uh, Patrice Bergeron sort of falls into a similar uh, uh, blanket there. Um, and just to get back to Kucherov, I think um, with re- you know you mentioned recent recency bias. I think that um, voters or people who talk about awards on Twitter or pundits, I think that people are sleeping on Kucherov and how consistent he's been wire to wire. We were all talking about him in the first couple of months. He hasn't done like has he been uh, as productive, as efficient? No, but he's still he's still producing at a super high rate. And I think just people got tired about talking about him. Tired of of you know there weren't enough highlight plays. It, it just he's sort of flown under the radar in the second half when really he hasn't fallen off uh, at least to, to any great degree. Um, and also with McDavid, 
He's winning the Art Ross right now by six points. Uh, I'm I'm ready to say that he's the best player in the league right now. Like I know the whole the whole Crosby McDavid argument. I think this year proves that he's the best player in the league. And if he happens to to blow the doors off of the last ten days of the season, and the Art Ross uh, is is you know maybe twelve points, thirteen points, or or ten. Like I start I start moving him a lot closer to McKinnon on my on my list. Like this is just. It's it's great to talk about it right now, but I feel like it's going to take until all the games are done, all 82 for every team, for me to really like feel confident about about a decision. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you on this point. I, I think this is – I would be surprised if five years from now when we're doing this podcast, which we, you will be doing. <laughs> of course we will be doing that. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, we will be talking about the 2018 hard. Is like, and, and the, you know the thing that kills me? You you read the fan section, you know, on Twitter or whatever whatever social media out you're following, and fans for that for respective player on their given team, they seem so confident that that player has, is deserving of the heart. And I'm like, how can you guys be so sure about this? There is not a single compelling argument that I have seen anyway that explains to me why McDavid over everyone, Kucherov over everyone, McKinnon over everyone. It really comes down to what you proper what you weight, and that again is different from in the eyes of voter to votary I, even me and you are half different we picked the same three players a completely different combination so I, I i there is there is so much difficulty with this and i think a lot of it is actually going to come down to uh you know i i do wonder about marchand i think marchand is actually probably fourth on my list i think he's probably the closest one knocking on the door but i start wondering how many votes is patrice bergeron going to steal even if he takes five percent does that knock bergeron does that knock marchand out of the top three probably i i think it's going to be that close oh man it's great right it's great fodder but <laughs> so i put out like a twitter poll like this is like a month ago uh maybe even less than that and i forgot to put mckinnon like there's only four there's four spots right i think i had malkin kutrov and uh, i think at that time taylor hall and then another category um and i think a couple names in there but mckinnon i literally typed it in there weren't enough characters so i'm like ah screw it he's just part of the other and i hadn't really done a deep dive this is literally just hey what does everyone think and av's twitter was all over me and and for for good reason like at that point i hadn't really investigated and then when you do you're like no 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 mckinnon's been there for for part of the discussion for a couple months here and i was i was sleeping on him a little bit there but now i'm i'm fully on board um let's talk about the selkie this the definition for the Selkie Trophy is forward who best excels in the defensive aspects of the game. Um, let's just start with Patrice Bergeron. Uh, continues to amaze. Um, if he won the Selkie, he'd be the first player in NHL history, at least according to HockeyReference.com, to uh, win five Selkies. So this is this could be a historic win if he does indeed get it. Um, as usual, he passes the eye test and the numbers test. Um, I'm sure you're well aware that uh, Marchand. Pasternak and uh, Bergeron just absolutely crushed teams. Uh, you know, shot differential, goal differential. Uh, Bergeron specifically, his goal, his on ice goal goals for percentage is sixty seven point seven right now. That's just bonkers. Um, the only caveat with him is that he's he's played fifty six games. The Bruins have seven remaining, so he could hit sixty three, which I feel like is kind of on the edge of of being. Uh, a legitimate, you know, full body of work, but it's a tough one because he's, he's, I think, you know, when you, when you, when you watch him play and when you look at the underlying data, 
it it aligns so well that he's the best defensive forward in the league and he hasn't uh dropped off at all from from say last year or other times that that he's won the, the heart in the past and it's just it's to me like Sean Couturier is right there, Anze Kopitar is right there, Alex Barkov is right there, but Bergeron's still Bergeron. What what do you think? So I I'm gonna vote Bergeron because and maybe this is a maybe this is a uh, a vote against voter fatigue uh, because it drives me nuts. But just because you voted for a guy a couple years ago does not mean someone else deserves it or whatever. Like, I, I'll listen to arguments on merit about if Bergeron played enough games or, you know, if, if he was good enough defensively, blah, blah, blah. But just because he's won it a couple years ago or a year ago or will be the most, you know, have not collect the most wins ever, whatever the case is, I, I don't have time for those arguments. So Patrice Bergeron is absolutely in my top three and at the top of my list, number one. Sean Couturier, by the way, I have to say, I think I would have, Put at the halfway point of the season ish. I think I even wrote about this, but I could be wrong. I I had Couturier as ahead of Patrice Bergeron on oh. paper. There was a very good statistical argument that Couturier was playing as good, if not marginally better, defensively than Bergeron. But I think those numbers have slipped a little bit. And although I I, I think Couturier is Chuck Couturier is amazing. There, there are two guys that I think I've carried more water for the NHL <laughs> than, than anyone else in the league. And it's Sean Couturier and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Those are my two guys. If I'm starting a team, that's where I'm going right down the middle. <laughs> but, you know, so I, I'm absolutely putting Couturier in the top three. The, the thing that bothers me a little bit, and I would have to, I would have to fact check this, so don't quote me, but I think his numbers have slipped down the last 20, 25 games to the point where he's not, not showing the exact type of Patrice Bergeron level dominance that he was in the first half of the year. So I think that puts him too. Um, I, I for the third spot, honestly, there you could go probably three, four, five different ways there. Can I can I make a a random recommendation of a player who is almost surely going to get less than five Selkie votes? But I think he's been unbelievably good this year. Can I guess? Oh, you can guess. I'll even give you the conference. I'll give you the division, Central Division, <laughs> Western Conference. Oh, I was going to say Mark Stone because he's a winger and wingers never get any love, but. Um... Uh, Eric Stahl? I don't know. This this player plays on wing predominantly. Oh. So the answer is the answer, and and again, this is a this is the data nerd vote that okay. If you watch this player, he might not be in your top ten. I, I think he's, I think most people agree he's good defensively, but uh, Brett Ritchie in Dallas. Wow, has been didn't see that one coming. Fantastic this year, and if you if you compare his on ice or if you compare predominantly his on ice numbers head to head with the Selkie. The, the likely Selkie guys, Couturier, Kopitar, Mar, uh, you know, Bergeron, his numbers stack up just as well as any player in the league, including Patrice Bergeron. So I'm going to give you a quick, couple quick reference numbers. Yep. So you don't, you would not subscribe to the theory or idea that Dallas is a good defensive team. Is that fair? Abs- well, under Ken Hitchcock, they've been all right. I, I wouldn't say they're dominant defensively, no. Yeah, they, they have they have been better on <laughs> the, the bar. They, they tipped <laughs> over that. The bar was set so low, they tipped over it. So, oh. yes, they have been better. That is a fair – that's a good call out. But I don't think they are a great defensive team. But here's something to keep in mind with Brett Ritchie. And I get it. He's played – he's had benefit of some decent teammates too. But, by the way, so is a lot of these other guys. Um, how many goals against for 60 minutes do you think he's been on the ice for? So, he, again, he so he's, a, he's at 66 games. He's going to probably end up playing 700, 750 minutes. He's been on the ice for every 60 minutes – 
1.4 goals against for 60 minutes, which is better than Bergeron's at 1.6. Now, Bergeron's going to play slightly better competition, but that, that alone is a starting point. You say, okay, maybe he's getting a little bit lucky. Yeah. What do his shot rates against look like? Every 60 minutes, he's on ice for 46 shots against, which I believe is the best number in the league of any forward. And just for a frame of reference, again, Patrice Bergeron's at around 48, 49 shots against for 60 minutes. Um, this is a player who his, his penalty differential is not horrible. Um, again, he doesn't play nearly as much as he probably should. Like even Bergeron, we're talking about, does he beat the criteria at 57 games and 755 on five minutes? I, my answer is yes. Like I think if you play 60 or more games, and again, this is just throwing a dart here, but I, I, I would be comfortable voting, especially for the Selkie, um, for a type of player like that. I just wish sometimes that you could get like the a, a throwaway vote of recognition for a player who probably he, he's obviously not going to win it, and he might he might not even deserve to be in the top three. But like he has been so good by numbers and by eyes defensively for a team that really has no bread and butter defensively or very little bread and butter defensively. I can't I like I I don't I would be I would I really am interested to see the full voting now that it's going to be uh, yeah. is Selkie voting going to be released actually now that I'm thinking about um, it. Um yeah it's 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 uh the Hockey Writers Association so it yeah, should okay. be. So it will be released. I'm curious to see if he gets three or four votes, but I I would give him a throwaway vote just out of respect and moreover maybe because I think it's really one to um Bergeron Bergeron then Couturier. Um I, I would give him the, the nice throwaway third vote. Like, hey, you can get up there on stage with everyone and you're not going to win. Hey, I, Brett Ritchie wasn't even on my radar. Um, the, the up there and, we go. The up there and, we go. <laughs> this is the start. The up-and-comers in my mind are Sean Couturier, Alex Barkov. I can't believe Barkov is only 22. It seems almost like a misprint. Um, but given his workload this year, which I believe he leaves, leads all forwards in ice time, um, has good penalty differential. Face-offs are a weird stat. Like, I... I mean, if you're good at them, that's obviously a plus, but I feel like there's too much of a an emphasis on it. But he's good at that. He's got good underlying numbers. Um, like, oh, this is – the Selkie's weird um, just because I feel like it's so almost – it, I was just going to say it's almost – Can I lodge a mini objection with Barkov? And sure. And by the way, I will preface all of this by saying that I think Barkov – if he was uh, – he's not underrated anymore. That's that's obvious. I think everyone recognizes that he's an elite player at this yes. point. Um, and I, I think I think he's underrated, really underrated offensively. Like his hands and his creativity in the offensive zone are as good as pretty much any other player in the league. Uh, and I think that needs to be prefaced with. I don't think he's been that good defensively this year. I really don't. And, and I'll just as a starting point – Florida is giving up about three goals every 60 minutes with him on the ice. And, and yes, he is carrying a, an unbelievable workload. But it's not as if he's getting you know getting screwed by luck here. I mean, or bad goaltending. I mean, Florida, I think, is top ten in the league in goaltending. And yet, he has been on ice for an abundance of shots and goals against pretty much all year. And, and again, you can point to a, a variety of things that might be out of Barkov's control on that front. And again, there's no doubt he's an elite, he's an elite hockey player, period. But... Like, the, the whole point about Bergeron is, like, teams literally cannot enter the defensive zone against the guy, <laughs> yeah. let alone score against him. But don't I, I have trouble voting for a Barkov over a Bergeron, for example, when Bergeron literally has given up half the number of goals per 60 minutes than a Barkov. Like, th- that's that's my stop point. Like, I, I just, I don't know that I that's can fair. in the yeah. top three. And by the way, he's still favorable on goals, but that's because they've been so good offensively with him on the ice that he's able to smooth it over. So, again, huge impact player. 
But has he really been one of the three best defensive players? I, I get the workload argument. I, he's shouldered a ton. He's pre, he's playing in every pretty much every game state. He you know they got one of the biggest roles of any player for a respective team in the league. But I don't know that his defensive numbers are all that good. All right, let let I'm going to give you my top five, and I don't know if we've I don't know if you gave the full top five. Just you were sort of back and forth. So mine goes Bergeron, uh, Couturier, Kopitar, Barkov, and Stone. And and Stone was sort of a throw in winger because. Center. The last winger to win was was Yuri Lettinen in o two o three, and <laughs> I don't know. I, I just feel like it's like people just completely block out wingers, and I wanted to give Mark Stone some love. But what's your top five? Um, so it's going to go Bergeron, uh, Couturier. My fun throwaway vote for Richie, who's probably not in my top real top five, but I'm going to put him in. I'm going to put him in the top three as as a nod. Okay. Um, I will put uh, I'll put Kopitar four. And pff, I don't know if I have a fifth. I really don't. And probably for the same reasons that you do. Or it's like, ah, oh, Mark Stone. He's really good. <laughs> hey, there's a random guy I, that I, I like. I don't know that I have a great five. I don't. That's fine. Don't want you lying on uh, on the podcast here. We say it again. I said I don't want you. I don't want you just throwing out names and just lying to me here. Mike Hoffman. Mike Hoffman. <laughs> Mike Hoffman. Okay, fine. Stone. Mark Stone. Mike Hoffman. By him. He, he barely even moved. <laughs> Uh, the thing with the Selkie, this is what I was going to say at one point, was I feel like it's it's the it's the one award that, although the data is great, like I feel like I lean towards the eye test a little more than maybe other awards. I just, I feel like we still don't have a great handle on defensive statistics. I like a lot of them, but I feel like with this award, there's a lot of nuances and Maybe we'll get that one day with player tracking, but like Bergeron, you can watch him and know that he is, if he's not, you know, the the best defensive forward in the league, he's one of them. You see that with Kopitar. Like, I just feel like it's sort of like, uh, it leans closer to the eye test than to the data compared to say, I don't know, no. the Norris or, and, and, or, or and, the Vesna or whatever. You're, you've nailed this. Like every person worth their salt who has spent an, a minute of time or more in, in hockey data knows that offensive numbers are much more robust and meaningful and centric to the individual than defensive numbers. I mean, this is why, you know, if you, if you talk about, okay, what are the best player measures for a defenseman? Well, in that top three or top four is probably real coursey, right? Like, how, what, 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 are you, what are you looking at? How much, how much are you impacting your team's shot advantage um, versus when you're off the ice, right? Like, that, that's one of a quick – the first one of the first few things you'll look up if you're trying to get a feel for, you know, player impact for a defenseman. And yet for a forward, it's always goals, assist points. And – and the funny thing about goals at this point is that they're very, very, very repeatable year over year. So not only right. do you feel like, hey, look, this is a meaningful measure, but oh, by the way, it's, it's indicative of players' talent, where defensive numbers are much more jumpy. With that said, though, and this is what I will caveat, so I completely agree with you, but if historically, when people find obvious Selkie winners, Pavel Datsuk and Patrice Bergeron are the two best examples, you can watch them. You don't even need to see the numbers, and you can say, man, no one gets by this guy. He is elite with his stick. He's elite playing the body. He's so good at transitioning. He doesn't let teams enter the zone. You can see all that, right? But every single year, the day, and Kopitar too, those, the Holy Trinity, those three, every single year, shots against data, scoring chance against data, yeah, yeah. relative measures, goals against data, are always super, super, super favorable to those types of players. And Again, I, I don't I don't disagree with your conclusion that you have to rely a little bit more on your eyes for this type of award, but I think it does beg the question of, okay, so 
So in the case of Alex Barkov, for example, who I think is going to get a lot of Selkie votes, and, and maybe he deserves it. Maybe it's fair. But I think it does raise the question of, well, if he's so good defensively, why are his numbers not like those guys I named or a lot of other guys that I just named? And, and, and maybe there's always – it's always possible that there's a good answer to that question, but I think there's enough evidence to suggest that if you are really making an impact on the defensive zone – the numbers will more or less be there. There might be a, a, a wider or larger margin of error, but you're still you you get it. You get a decent feel for what that looks like, and and that's where I kind of struggle a bit with Barkov this year. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. Like I don't know if you completely connected the 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 thing I'm about to say, but you're basically dancing around the notion of the eye test and the underlying data. Like it's basically the same thing. I mean, there's discrepancies, and there's some things that don't completely correlate, and you know, sort of some weird things and nuances, as I explained. But like, like <laughs> I don't know. A lot of the data, like, okay, co- you know, Corsi against per sixty. That I think that's a pretty good stat because it's showing how often the other team is in your own end. If you're a good defensive player, you can probably get it in the other team's zone and you know keep it there because you have a great stick or great positioning or or whatever it, it may be. Like, I feel like there oftentimes it's like analytics, eye test, they don't connect. But I think. I mean, most times it connects for me. I just with the Selkie, I just I, I lean towards like you know I really like watching Bergeron do do his his fine work with the eye test, and I do see in the numbers, but I just feel like when I'm when I'm doing a tiebreaker, I'm just like this guy eye test. Um, but the funny thing is, uh, you mentioned that there's like a holy trinity. Um, I just pulled up on Hockey Reference the 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 last Selkie winner. So the modern era. Since the 2005 lockout, these are the winners. There's been three for Datsuk, uh, four for Bergeron, maybe five this year, um, one for Kopitar, two for Rod Brindamore uh, to start off the, the modern era, which seems like he played forever ago, uh, one for Jonathan Taves, and one for Kessler. Like, it's just a handful of guys that win all the time. Yeah, I so, man, I feel pretty good about nailing those three guys then because I, I don't think anyone's going to put Taves or... Um, or, or or modern day Rod Brindamore. <laughs> Let's uh, bring him out of retirement. Brindamore might still be able to play. I, I shouldn't even say that. Like he could probably sign up on a playoff roster and do pretty damn well right now. So, um, but yeah, I, I you know, and, and I think more to this point, I think award voting needs to be more subjective. If you're doing a hundred percent data driven approach, you're going to run into issues like this one that we talked about, or even you know, even the heart like. I'm sitting here as someone who I like to think looks at, I look at hockey data pretty much every single day. And I could make an argument. I could write an article right now about why McKinnon should win it, why McDavid should win it, why Kucherov should win it. And implicitly, they would all be, to some degree anyway, conflicting data points, right? You know, for one player, I might say, well, his, his scoring is through the roof. For another player, I'm like, but look at his relative value to the team. And for another player, I might say, yeah, but he plays in all game states. He's huge on the power, you know. You can go through all these machinations, and really it comes down to two things. One, what do you value the most? And two, you know, more more objectively, which I think is where this the, the discussion in hockey and every sport really needs to go towards, uh, probably less for baseball and basketball, is how many goals are you adding to your team? How many wins are yes, you adding to your yes. team? Like, if you start with that as your central question to answer, I think you try to get – I think you will get more accurate results. And sometimes I'll catch myself – I do it all the time. Like, I'll get stuck on a couple data points, and I'm like, wow, this, this seems really compelling, really meaningful. But I think you can lose the forest for the trees that way, right? Like, so, if you, again, if you come back to 
how many goals did you add, how many wins, and then subsequently how many wins did you add to your team? For every one of these awards, as it relates, so Selkie defensively, you know, hard all-encompassing, Vezina just pure goaltending, you try and answer that question, you will at least get a much better feel for what that package looks like. Travis, always a pleasure. I'll, I'll let you get back to uh, to watching Yankee highlights. I know you're probably just swimming in them right now while we're talking, anyways. Uh, John, did you catch <laughs> did you catch any of John Carlson's balls off his bat? No, no, I didn't. I think he hit him up there far enough for you. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that was that was actually it was it was fun to go to a home opener and everything, but like the result was pretty ugly. The uh, the two run home run to to start things off, and then it was just it was just ugly after that. The, the Jays couldn't do anything offensively. Um, so Trav- why, can you can you answer me this as someone who is Toronto centric? I feel that the Yankees and Blue Jays really don't have a rivalry, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just always look at oh they're playing the Jays. Like I I don't root against the Jays actively ever. I actually root for the Jays in most instances, and I don't know if it's because I spend so much time doing. Canadian type stuff or what, but I, I think that's also the general feeling for the Yankees fan base is, yeah, we don't really hate the Jays. The Jays are fine. Jays are just another divisional team. Whereas you loathe the Red Sox, you loathe the Orioles, and we, you know, even historically at some point, loathe the Rage. I, I just don't feel any animosity, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just feel like yeah, they respect each other. It's cool. I'd say there's a bit of an inferiority complex in Toronto towards Boston and New York, and I mean it's. But is it, is it, John, is it fair to say that I, and again, I'm just throwing darts here. Sure, sure. Does Toronto not feel that way more so about Boston than New York? Uh, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say, but I think they're grouped together, to be honest, because it goes back to, you know, the, the heydays of, of the Yankees and, and Red Sox just destroying the division. And then you saw, and then you would see Baltimore, the Rays were horrific. This, uh, this is going back like 10 years. The Rays were horrific. Baltimore was usually middling. And then the, the Jays were kind of in the middle. And it was always looking up towards Boston, looking up towards New York. And there was there was no like peer level, right? It was it was like, you know, these big sort of uh, creatures ahead of us. And we don't we, we can't even compete with them. And I don't think it's even though the Jays had a little bit of a run over the last three, four years, like it's still not there where where at least the fan base feels like it's equal to to New York. And there's a lot of history in New York, a lot of history in Boston, a lot of money, a lot of championships. But, like, I just don't think, one, the rivalry is there, or, two, the the sort of the pride is there. Yeah, yeah you might be right about this. Um, the, the, the one thing, I, like, I, even in the years when the Blue Jays made the playoffs and the Yankees didn't, I think generally the Yankees fan base was, you know, in any other instance where a divisional team made the playoffs, they're, you know, apoplectic watching them, like just cheering against them at all costs. Never, never felt that way for me or any of my Yankee friends, friends that I do have um, about the Jays. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's like a maybe there's like a temporary ceasefire between the two teams. But uh, what what is your outlook on that? We should end on your your season outlook <laughs> for the Blue Jays. What does it look like? Is it 84 wins? Uh, yeah, it's it's low 80s. I, I don't, I don't. To be honest, I don't have um, a lot of faith in this team. I. I I don't really blame management like what was out there that they could have got that you know other teams uh, got I, like they they made like they made changes around the edges but no impact players came in and when that happens um, unless the pitching staff can really carry this team because they do have three really strong arms and Stroman Estrada I guess you can throw Osuna in there and and Sanchez so four guys um, that can carry them like to win after win but the lineup is just kind of pedestrian. 
Do you want do you want the uh, Travios fun fact of the day here? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Uh, true or false? Played with Marcus Stroman growing up for a year or two, and the answer is true. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, there's no way that's false if you bring it up. My little brother played with him for years and years and years, but there were a couple summer league years. Um, obviously, we played pretty competitive travel ball when we were younger, and he played up probably by a couple of years, um, one, at least one, maybe even two. I think I'm a year older, year or two a year older than him. Um, but he, he played, I mean, he grew up one mile from me, um, and the towns were divided within that mile, so we did not go to the same school district, but we went to bordering districts. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I when I was a kid, I, I grew up playing with him for a couple of years. My brother played with him a lot more. Um, and the only thing I ever remembered about him was, man, his dad is the most massive <laughs> human being on the planet. He's Jack. Never in a million years would have thought he would become you know one of the better pitchers in baseball, so. Pretty cool story for him. Yeah, when I was at the at the stadium today, they're introducing every single player because it's opening day, and you you know how athletes are they get they get introduced and they sort of have the green face on and don't really show emotion. Stroman not pitching, and and he I know he wasn't happy with that decision, uh, you know, a month back when it was made, but he seemed pretty happy on the field. He's just smiling. He's you know yucking it up with the fans. It's just funny, right? Like this guy is just loving life, and and I mean it gets him in trouble sometimes, but I just think like. Be yourself, man, and his self is clearly, um, you know, uh, just jubilant, and, and he's a, a hell of an arm. So, um, anyways, I don't know how we started talking about Marcus Stroman, but <laughs> um, thanks for joining me, man. It's it's uh, it's fun to re- it's fun to reconnect, and and we went through three awards. I got I got another episode next week to uh, to finish off the rest. All right, man. Sounds good. Thanks again. So to follow your stuff, Travis Yost is uh, Twitter. I think there might be a like a middle initial in there or something. No, there's no middle initial in Twitter. You're disclosing all my non-Twitter secrets here. <laughs> and then Travis Yost on Twitter. There might be an initial in the email that I have listed. In that must Twitter be it. That must be it. So. Okay, so yeah. Travis Yost on Twitter and then tsn.ca for your work. Thanks again, Travis. Thank you, sir. Take care.